Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. All new episode of Keep It. I'm Sir Iron Madison III. I'm Louis Vettel. Look at the accent I've tried. <laughs> you came out like Pirelli from Sweeney Todd. Um, <laughs> I am Ida Osman. I am Duchess of the Streets, bitch. <laughs> this is an all British episode. It is, truly. This is like becoming a theme between last week and this week. We gotta bring the accents back, girls. Yeah. Already. Well, I think they just have m- more going on. Period. In yeah. America, we're like content with our nothingness at the moment. So the way Harry and Meghan dominated the news cycles and are going to continue to for the next week, like nothing else matters right now. Right. Truly nothing. But it feels like a throwback to pre-quarantine, right? When like everyone could focus on a single news topic at once. I love groupthink. I do. <laughs> we haven't had this since I feel like, um, I remember the last dance and then maybe honorable mention to Bridgerton. We were talking about that a lot. Mm. Tiger King. Yeah. Beyond mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I love collectively coming around some bullshit together. It's my favorite thing. And it's also like a huge throwback to like when I was in middle school, the big like Monica Lewinsky interview with Barbara Walters where everybody had to watch it. And then me in middle school, like, underweight and sniffling suddenly (laughs) came out of that interview being like i know all about sex now and abuse of power and i'm going to talk about it with girls at school like what the like i (laughs) i really was all about myself after that interview a liaison yeah that is the flip side right because everyone is talking about it everyone now has an opinion on it and right i am staying off the internet (laughs) <laughs> Not my mother calling me saying, isn't the queen the head of the institution? Something doesn't add up. <laughs> mom, okay. Let's sit down. Let's sit down. Your mom with her deer stalker and mm-hmm. your Sean pipe. Yeah. Uh-huh. Ain't she the CEO of the firm? What's happening? <laughs> oh, my God. The amount of mentions of the firm and the institution. Yeah. Very confusing. The different names for it are like all John Grisham novels. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the runaway jury betrayed Megan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is an all British episode. The BAFTAs dropped this morning as we're recording. They're diverse. They went off, so to speak. Uh, the Baptists were in some fucking trouble. They're the kind of organization that were like, we are on the fence about someone like Denzel Washington. Mm-hmm. And like, not awarding like the A-list yeah. actors of color even. And this year, they threw a whole bunch of uh, actors of color into the fray, which is exciting. I didn't even really realize that Alfre Woodard's movie Clemency was still available. That feels like it came out three years ago to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't remember. That was a 2017 drop, was it not? <laughs> the local colonialist press association finally got it right this year. <laughs> and of course, we're going to spend the entire episode talking about Harry and Meghan. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what else would there be to talk about? Did you guys locate any other news? Sorry. <laughs> it's about Harry and Meghan this week. Uh, Harry, Meghan, 
Oprah, Diana. We're going to get into all of it. And we're joined by a British actor today as well, an icon, Delroy Lindo. Who is amazing in The Five Bloods and has been on our screen. I mean, he's in Gun 60 Seconds. He's been with us stateside for years and years and years. Oh, you know I'm going to ask him about my queen, Angelina Jolie. Right. Oh, and what a strange era for Angelina Jolie when we were figuring out what to do with her post-Oscar. Yeah. She really got an Oscar way too early. And then we were like, okay, now what do you do? You're an action star or something? But you were just in Girl Interrupted? It made no sense. <laughs> uh, but at least we got Tomb Raider, the cradle of life, out of that era, right? Oh, yeah, which I can't stop thinking about. What a wretched <laughs> pair of films. And you know, I, like, I am Tomb Raider. I've been Tomb Raider for Halloween several times. Brown shorts, a sea green top, everything about it speaks to me. Any costume that Lewis can throw together with a <laughs> lunch break visit to Target. <laughs> <laughs> he will wear five different times. That is among the harshest reads I have ever been subjected to, and you are deeply correct. I'm not going to two locations for Halloween. All right, when we're back, who is having that conversation? We are. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, Democrats in the House passed H.R. 1, a democracy reform package that would make voting way more accessible, end partisan gerrymandering, and reduce the power of special interests and make ethics reforms. Now that bill heads to the Senate, we're getting the votes we need to pass it could be the biggest fight we face over the next four years. If you care about climate change, health care, police reform, or any other progressive goal, you have to care about fixing our democracy first. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash for the people to learn more about this bill and how you can help make sure it gets passed. And I really love that it takes its name from that two-season Shonda Rhimes ABC show. Which reminds me, shout out to Off the Map and everything Mamie Gummer has tried to give us. <laughs> On Sunday, Oprah invited her new neighbors, Harry and Meghan, and 17 million viewers, not to her own Montecito estate, but to some random neighbor of theirs still, um, for some afternoon tea. And you know it was spilled, girl. Yeah. Yeah, all over their frocks. It was, it was wild. I hate to be another person making a spilling tea joke, but they are British. This is the only time it's acceptable. What else do they drink? I don't even think they have water over there. Yeah. <laughs> Just tea comes out of the faucet. Spilling the beans and toast. <laughs> that, there you go. No. But by the way, I tuned in sort of on accident. I was watching something else. I had forgotten to even look forward to this. And then it took milliseconds of this to realize, oh, this is an event. Like, oh, we're learning things yes. naturally. I didn't realize, I should have known because when Oprah does an interview, whoever does the pre-interview figures out there's going to be revelations. Mm -hmm. And if you remember, for example, I think I've brought this up on the podcast before, but Mackenzie Phillips, who was like the daughter of uh, John Phillips from the Mamas and the Papas, she did a tell-all interview once with Oprah on her show. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, I've seen every Eatra Hollywood story about the Mamas and the Papas. I've seen every behind the music. What else could she say? Oh, she's revealing she had an incestuous relationship with their father. Like, there has to be something in order for Oprah mm -hmm. to be involved, you know? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, Oprah's not just going to rehash some shit. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Oprah's going to make it all spill out. Mm -hmm. I wish there'd been more revelations about the um, Disney Channel TV show, So Weird, but... Nothing. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> we were left wanting. Wow. Yes. Good interview, Mackenzie. Uh, 
That's for keep it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I first want to address the location of the interview because Oprah opens this up with Megan and uh, she's like, Harry will be joining us later. Uh, they do this pretend social distancing hug. Oprah's like, we can't hug each other because of social distancing. The crew is double masked. They all have face shields. I'm like, girl, you are not going to convince me that you, Megan, and Harry, and little baby inside you, little Archie, all of y'all are not vaccinated at this point. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or also that you guys didn't all get tested prior to yeah. having this meeting and that you would be able to hug. That was yeah. that was felt very performative, even panning over to the cameraman. They did that, and then when they showed the other parts of the interview that are like the next day they're just walking next to each other and sitting in the chicken coop so what was with the performance in the beginning and by the way i actually have a petty question did we love oprah's outfit because she went mauve on mauve and i found it underperformed in terms of a primetime event some people were loving it i found it very appropriate i guess it seemed like she was dressing up as a british investigator <laughs> the, the glasses the sweater mm -hmm. it seemed very much like you know she was in a reboot of perot yeah yeah the, i like the, the the crease skirt the satin the sheen to it he was giving man repeller it was giving like a lot just youth oprah was giving youth i loved it the boots were hidden the boots oh my god the boots. Oh, the boots. come on and also the complimentary nature of the pinks and the greens mm. like there was some planning there was some planning yeah she was better dressed than megan True enough. Um, also, I mean, it was very like patio culture. I felt her mm -hmm. outfit. You know, like is she, she's mm -hmm. somebody who belonged in a wicker chair. You know, yeah. so all right, I'll allow it with a julep. With a julep. <laughs> the location, as I was saying, was a neighbor's of theirs. They live next to Oprah now, but they didn't have the interview at either of their homes. It might have been another Tyler Perry habitat for humanity <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that he just owns. But I love how she opens this interview with. And a neighbor, you know, uh, lent this space to us um, so we could sit on their beautiful pergola. <laughs> Just throwing out pergola at the beginning of this interview. I'm like, Girl. these 17 million Americans watching this interview don't know what the fuck a pergola is. <laughs> they barely got patios, girl. It's a pandemic. Stay relatable. Support. <laughs> girl, say gazebo and keep it moving. But you know what? As um, we always say on this show, we do not want our celebrities to be relatable. No. Again, Oprah should be cruel. She should look straight to camera and be like, I can't believe you're even invited to see this. You know, there should be a cockiness about the whole thing. It actually reminds me of that Vanity Fair, I believe, interview that Oprah did that one time where she talks about how there is like a separate greenhouse on her estate where she sits there in the morning and drinks her tea and reads like The New Yorker. Girl. It's just for that. It's just for that. That mirrors my morning, but I do that in my bed slash kitchen slash bathroom. <laughs> that's where I that's where I exist. Do, do, is it all one room, girl? <laughs> you live in a railroad apartment? Yes, it's just a jump from the bed to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> that's LA life. Greenhouses were developed so that um, billionaires could read The New Yorker. I don't know if you understood that, but uh, <laughs> that's a scientific development that we're all grateful for. Mm -hmm. So the interview, of course, was to discuss what the British press has dubbed Megxit, which, girl, I'm I'm already preparing myself for the next two decades of hearing blank 
zit mm -hmm. to describe anything that happens in the UK. The same way that Watergate has forced oh us my to have gate oh. for, for like four decades now. Mm -hmm. And it counts as a pun. Like that really is horrible. Also, there's something about Megs, like the G next to the X. Like it's as ugly a sound as they want it to be. It's hideous. You know, to kind of throw shade her way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, gross. Also, that's the sequel to The Meg. So... <laughs> I'm always going to be confused about what we're talking about here. <laughs> no, hold on. The Meg. Is that the shark movie? The shark movie. <laughs> yes, right? Okay. Yes. Very good. The big shark. Big shark. Got it, got it, got it. <laughs> the interview was to discuss their exit from the UK, you know, leaving the family behind. There were revelations. What do we think of the interview in general? First of all, this interview, I had to literally scrape my jaw off the floor every five seconds because what was most interesting to me wasn't even what they was talking about, what they was doing. It was everything that was left unsaid by the end of this interview. The whole time I'm thinking about Prince Andrew, I'm thinking about Princess Diana, I'm thinking about the scandals, I'm thinking about history repeating itself. I, it was, as Lewis said, and as we're all saying, an iconic moment in pop culture, but also so many questions are left. I have so many questions. And I want to say that I felt like the general attitude online was people... Well, first of all, missing Oprah, which is very fair because she has a specific presence as an interviewer and specifically entertaining as an interviewer, which yeah. that alone is a skill. I miss Oprah after the show. Oh, right. Where she like <laughs> yeah. she like kicks off her like moccasins or whatever and keeps it going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I felt like it was a pretty ultimately flattering interview to the two of them. And I'm not saying it was meant to be like an ambush in any way or whatever, but I would say it was a B-plus interview that was an A in entertainment. Yeah, based on circumstance. I would agree with that. Yeah, um, yeah. it was mostly a nostalgia moment for me because obviously the history repeating itself conversations about Diana, mm -hmm. uh, you're seeing those parallels, but really the interview itself was so entertaining to me because, yes, I miss Oprah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, I think that like Royce and I are watching it on the couch and like we're most riveted just by like Oprah's skills. You know, you miss her interviewing skills, the way that she sort of is OK with um, silences in interviews, the way that, you know, she like just sort of like leans in, you know, and asks those follow up questions. Um, he's a great interviewer. And um I do really miss that, you know, because like what? She's got like the Oprah podcast or something now, but it's like you can't really do that in segments. I, I miss that visual Oprah on the couch yes. interviewing someone moment, you know, but also like aside from them, like who is big enough for her to be interviewing at this point, unless she went back to just interviewing, you know, everyday people, right? Mm -hmm. I believe that the last thing of this we got from her was that CBS interview where she uh, was interviewing what, like Trump voters? Oh, right. Yes, yes, yes. What I appreciate about Oprah is that she unpredictably varies between being like an interested observer, a fun high school guidance counselor, and then world's greatest detective. Yeah. Yes. The seriousness level changes and is surprising. And if something is unclear, she's usually good at picking out, wait, you were unclear about that. Mm -hmm. Let's get back into that. I thought Megan was generally very straightforward seeming. It did not feel like she was avoiding talking about anything. So for Oprah to still dig into things like 
what is the firm or isn't the queen partly responsible for this and etc even though the queen came out deeply unscathed by this yeah which i think is partly because she knows how many people are watching this interview and Mm -hmm. you know a lot of those people barely probably even remember the diana one all of it and that the idea of discussing the um queen the palace everything as the firm or the establishment is very 2005 WB sci-fi series. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know. The Michigan um, J. Frog days of the WB, yes. The Hallowell sisters are taking on the firm this season. <laughs> <laughs> and so a lot of that was probably just for, you know, like clarification for the audience. But she got to her most detective when they talked about one of the biggest revelations, which was that there had been conversations from family members about how dark Archie would be. The funniest conversation. Yes, and and Oprah's response, who who is having that conversation? (laughs) (laughs) And then Megan sort of revealed that, like, the conversation was had with Harry and related to her. And, you know, she was like, "I'm, I'm not going to out the person who did this. And Oprah's like, okay, but then... The Perot jumped back out mm. when Harry sat down to join Megan. She was like, "Okay, now who was having that conversation, mm-hmm. Harry?" And he he was very sheepish. He was like, yeah. "I don't want to say who that is." And I was wondering if I was angry about that. I was. Here's the thing: I've seen a lot of people say, "Well, who's surprised that you know the royal family or whatever is racist?" Not me, but I am surprised it went to that level where like we're just straight up describing racial aesthetics of a fucking child. But also yeah. put aside the fact that this conversation about him being whatever color is so stupid. This little British mulatto baby came out the color of Aaron Carter. Like he came out <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt like ambiguous. <laughs> like what did they, they, they were like, he's going to come out like Don Cheadle. What were they worried about? <laughs> toffee. The color of toffee was this baby. <laughs> the, the Harry Potter and the one drop print. <laughs> the one drop, the octoroon. <laughs> Megan, Megan is already light as hell herself, girl. What? It was ridiculous between a ginger and a light-skinned woman. Right. And then you got all the House of Windsor inbreeding. I mean, come on. Right. That baby was going to turn <laughs> out like chalk. <laughs> so that conversation aside, what I liked about this was that Harry deliberately left like an ambivalence about what happened and who and like the exact specifications of the conversation, which allows us to speculate and just be like, okay, fuck the whole institution. I think that might have served more use than him pointing directly out mm. and had that conversation with that. Absolutely. Um, I will say, though, that they followed up with Oprah via text so she could announce on um, the news the next morning when she and Gail discussed it um, that it was not the Queen. I definitely think it was William. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I have to admit the 178-year-old royal did come to mind when uh, this conversation <laughs> was <laughs> broached originally. I was mostly joking when I say that I think it's William, although I do think that he is most upset at William. Mm -hmm. I think he was upset at his father for sort of like, you know, ignoring his phone calls after all of this. But, you know, (laughs) I think that he was raised sort of in an environment where he witnessed sort of like the drama going on between his father and Diana. So he's probably seen his father shut down emotionally before, I assume, you know? We've all witnessed Harry's descent away from the monarchy Mm -hmm. for the past his entire life. Mm -hmm. His removal from the entire family and from the conversations around his family have been present since forever. Yeah. (laughs) Since he left to go join the little military. So I would say, if anything, he's probably most upset with his brother. 
you know? Um, because the beginning of the interview with Oprah and Meghan really talks a lot about the double standards in the British press, you know, how they would say one thing about Kate, and then when Meghan does the exact same thing, it would be a problem, mm-hmm. you know, um, because the British tabloids are racist. Uh, and <laughs> then specifically a story about how she had made Kate cry once it was the exact opposite. Kate had made her cry, and she was shocked that no one's taught to correct this story at all. The way I, I'm stealing the phrase, the reverse happened for every time I'm in trouble. <laughs> the reverse happened. Actually, the reverse happened. <laughs> Ira, did you enjoy the WandaVision finale? The reverse happened. The reverse happened. <laughs> but by the way, um, I want to see the footage of Kate making somebody cry because we have not seen that Kate Middleton ever. Mm. You know, her life has been perfecting the Vanna White wave and <laughs> nothing else has made it to the surface. I see it though. I see it. She has such a Regina from Once Upon a Time, such mm. a Nancy Reagan sort of quality to her. Mm-hmm. She's an operator. Exactly. She looked a four-year-old flower girl in the eye and was like, bitch, is that taffeta? <laughs> and started started making Megan fall. It's not, it's, oh God. Yeah. She looks like she has a little evil streak to her. Well, also, don't forget that she comes from um, party decorations as an industry. So mm. the aesthetics of a wedding were likely mm. front of mind for this queen. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I definitely think the thing that upsets Harry the most is stories like that and the fact that his brother has had no interest in publicly disavowing the hatred that his wife has been getting. And I think if you and your brother are both children of Diana and know what your mother has gone through, to see your brother sort of allow that to happen to your wife, your brother who will become the king someday, uh, I think that that is probably the biggest betrayal. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Also, by the way, I just have to say about Harry in this interview, he did not seem happy to me. I mean, it just seemed to me like somebody who his whole life has been... He's pissed. Satisfying people's curiosity in some way. Like, it's like people are just asking, like, wanting more of the truth from him. And it's like he called himself trapped, et cetera. We can talk about the, I guess, strangeness of that. But at the same time... I feel like he must feel like a piece of meat. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been his entire life. He's had to like subject himself to uh, the press and mm-hmm. misleading headlines, et cetera. So in a way, watching him talk to Oprah, which, you know, like, like let's say Oprah's interviewing me, I'm having the time of my life. This is like, you know, <laughs> I, I did not see even a glimmer of excitement about him. Yeah. One thing that I did like to see through Harry's even being in the interview and having these conversations is the literal evolution of masculinity that we've seen from his father's lack of talking about Diana's mistreatment to now him being here next to his wife and mm-hmm. being what appears to be very strong, but there's definitely torment. And sadness. That's very interesting, Aida, um, that idea of the evolution of masculinity, because I specifically remember when we were younger, the idea of Harry was, you know, he's the one who joins the military, right? Bad boy, et cetera. Yeah, the bad boy, the partier, you know, he's specifically like, I am a man. I'm acting out. Yeah, shirtless at the club on Daily Mail articles. I remember that. And now to see him in an Oprah interview... Um, in these soft tones, uh, holding Megan's hand throughout the entire interview. Right. Mm-hmm. Being a husband. Being a Interesting husband. evolution for him. You a know? father. First um, as a husband. Yeah. First as a father. <laughs> then as a son. Um, which is his job, by the way. You know, protect mm-hmm. your wife. Um, do your damn thing. 
um, the one thing you expect it to do. But I will also say that the Oprah question about, you know, how he felt trapped, right? Let's get into that. Mm. Because when he said that, you know, he he felt trapped, uh, Oprah was like, wait a second, you know, coming from privilege, you know, um, royalty, like you feel trapped. Part of me felt like that was a question that she was asking for the audience again Mm -hmm. for clarification just because Oprah knew that that statement alone uninvestigated could maybe like spiral out into like a problem for him or like a quote that is not conducive to the rest of the conversation, Mm -hmm. you know? So I feel like she needed that clarification there because there's no way Oprah doesn't really understand that. Like, of course that boy feels trapped. Right. You know, I mean, I feel like, the whole thing of American culture has been talking about how, you know, like institutions that we're all a part of, you can feel trapped in them. You know, like it was a revelation when you were like housewives in like the 50s, you know, could feel like trapped, yeah. even though that like their lives look perfect. I've seen Big Little Lies. It can all look wonderful <laughs> on the outside. Uh, and we watch The Crown now, right? You know, like. And I so does Oprah. That- Watch yeah. a little. We watch a little. We watch a little bit. <laughs> watch a little bit. Um, <laughs> so the idea that, you know, a young boy raised in this um, privileged world could still feel trapped by it is not shocking to me. But it makes sense that she would investigate that in the conversation because a lot of people are idiots. Right. She's standing in for like people in the middle of the country. Right. You know, who, yeah. yeah. Middle Americans who are going to see that and respond, you're trapped. <laughs> I'm trapped. I can't pay my bills, etc." You know, because most people, not just in America, most people in the world, you know, cannot look past their own worldview and understand why someone else could also be going through pain. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, um, as Jenny and Georgia would say, the oppression Olympics. <laughs> if my life is bad. No one else's life could possibly be bad. No one else could possibly be going through emotional turmoil. Anyway, let's take a short break because speaking of emotional turmoil, um, I would like to get into that aspect of Oprah and Megan's conversation. We'll be right back. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. So one of the biggest revelations of the interview was when Megan talked about how she had experienced suicidal thoughts, um, wanting to take her own life due to the barrage of racism from the British press. And the way she like received that information, how it would be friends panicking or mm-hmm. it would be, you know, it wouldn't be the people immediately around her informing her in a sort of responsible way. It was sort mm-hmm. of like she felt very secluded from the world yet receiving panic from the people closest to her. And that was the real history repeating itself stuff that Harry kept bringing up because it reminded um, me of the 
95 interview that um, Diana did with the BBC where she talked about, you know, her bulimia and she talked about how, you know, she felt trapped within this marriage, you know, that Prince Charles didn't even want to be a part of, you know, and how she was sort of left to her own devices. And when she asked the firm for help, she didn't get it. It was heartbreaking, actually, to hear Megan talk about the fact that she felt trapped, felt suicidal, wanted to take her own life, and couldn't get any help from Buckingham Palace. When she talked about how she was pregnant with Archie and she was in Buckingham Palace, and I didn't realize the gravity of her isolation, her not having a passport or her ID or any keys or access to leave the palace, Mm -hmm. and not leaving the palace for four months, that's going to take a toll on anybody's mental health, let alone a pregnant woman. That's the shit that always irritates me. You had people like former Keep It guest Bethany Frankel Mm. um, tweeting up a storm being like, cry me a river. You know, you're a princess. You have access to all this money, etc. It just really highlights how stupid people are mm-hmm. you know or like willingly dense yes. yeah like I'm, I'm sorry think about living at that palace and not having as Ayana just said like your id around you what are you actually doing what is your like day-to-day life like it sounds like it's filled with nothing i yeah. mean i'm obviously reiterating what i've seen emma corrin go through on the crown but, <laughs> <laughs> but you wake up you're told what to do right it boggles the mind thinking of how you fill most of your days like what are you doing on a Wednesday at 4.30. I just want to know. You know, like the rest of us are like mm-hmm. texting it up with friends or, you know, feeling normal, feeling mm-hmm. safe. And it sort of seems like she just felt like nothing. Yeah. She's reading an article about how an avocado is poisoning the world while she eats one. Like that is that is the weird level of attack. And all she was ever given access to was hatred and vitriol from the outside. And like you were saying earlier, Lewis, her friends not even realizing, her family not even realizing the amounts that they were giving to her, mm-hmm. putting on her radar. What's really interesting was that a lot of the conversations prior to this interview were how dare they do this interview during a pandemic when so many people are suffering, right? You know, and I think that uh, this pandemic should actually give people more sympathy with her. How often do people talk about the fact that they've just been in their houses, they don't have human contact, um, they can't leave, you know, they feel trapped by these circumstances, and she is literally living through a pandemic daily, right? Like, Mm -hmm. she, she can't leave. If you are online talking about how um, you are emotionally pained because you can't see your closest friends or family and hug them, imagine what this girl is going through every day. Totally agree with you. Would also even add that without the pandemic, this actually desensitized us to how ludicrous it is that she was in that palace for four months. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is over a season. That like That's a prisoner. She was really doing a bid. And what's interesting is when she opened up the interview talking about how she assumed different things about what it meant to be royalty. Because you grow up in LA, you're around celebrities, and then you go into this world. You know, a lot of people have different notions of what it means to join the royal family, right? And it's not, you know, all this glitz and glamour. I mean, there's some, but it's also like that depends who you are, right? Within the family, certainly not her with access to any of these things. And I've always wondered this watching The Crown, to be honest. I've just been like, who are the people who truly are okay with doing nothing all fucking day? 
Like, what do you do with your day? Like, she can't just even sit up and watch Netflix, it seems. And also, mm-hmm. let's just say, I mean, like, Prince Charles is not actually Josh O'Connor, so I wouldn't be standing there, like, fantasizing about him all day. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, uh, I also, you know what actually struck me about the interview, as in Megan talking to Oprah? I found Megan very self-possessed. And, of course, this is a situation where, did I really know what she sounded like before this? You know, the, the gifts from... Deal or no deal did not have a voice to them. I've never seen Suits, for example. I yeah. did not. Have- oh, you didn't watch all the seasons of Suits? You weren't a tailor, as I call um, the Suits fandom? <laughs> I was not. I was not a seamster. No. Um, uh, but she, I, I thought she had a cool self-confidence, is I guess the word, because she kept saying right to Oprah after she would explain something that had happened to her, as if mm-hmm. to say, I know I'm being rational about this. You know what I mean? Mm. Like The ability to be so poised... And I can't even fucking spell decorum, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, the mirroring of Princess Diana with that interview with Martin Bashir and and Megan's like this modernity and this ability to like keep composure was so beautiful to watch. Mm-hmm. She I wish I could have seen what she was gonna bring to Buckingham Palace. You know, I just can't imagine. To actually follow up on that, Aida, you know, you wanted to see what she would bring to Buckingham Palace, right? What was so interesting about the interview to me is how royally the royals fuck this up, right? You have a mixed race duchess stepping into your world the way that you could have positioned her to solve basically all of your racial problems. Uh, you know, to fix years of colonialism uh, and, you know, like the side eyes that people give to the royals, right? Even during the interview, they are constantly still deferential to the crown, they talk about how even though they're away from it and are giving up their official titles, how they would still love to help in any way that they can because they see the crown as a positive force in the world that can do good. They're not here to blow up that institution at all. Mm -hmm. She does not seem like a woman who came in there and was like, I'm about to take this shit down. All they Mm -hmm. had to do was be nice to her and none of this happens. None of it happens whatsoever. And they couldn't even do that. No, they basically presented her entire life there through a series of dogma. You know what I mean? Like, like just, you can't do this. This is not how this is done. This can't change. This can't change. And we'll say we'll protect you, but you're still isolated. Like, they just didn't work with her at all, which is just mind-blowing. Speaking of protection, back to my mother's comment from the top of this. I wanted to ask you guys, because... Clearly, did you see how like overzealous and excited they would get when they talked about the queen? And they're like, no, 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 she's amazing. She never did anything to hurt us. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, she is the matriarch and the head monarch and the, the top of the institution. Why is there a lapse in that bureaucracy? Where was her protection? Where was, where was the protection from the queen mm-hmm. for her family? You know, it reminds me a bit of how our government, right? You know, when, when, you, when you try and um, say, um, why can't this be done? Why can't that be done? You know, because of senators or, you know, like um, house representatives. And I feel like from what little we've seen in these interviews or even from watching The Crown, right? You know, like the, the, the Crown is a bureaucracy and there are people who are in control and it makes you wonder like who exactly is running all this, right? Because no, I feel like there's got to be some Mrs. Danvers uh, yeah. of Rebecca Fang, you know, like stalking the corridors and making sure like everything goes according to that person's plan. Because not even just Diana, but when other problems and scandals would arise in the royal family over the years. I mean, because Liz has been around for a minute. Yeah. 
her ass is old, <laughs> you know? Uh, the fact that so many of these things weren't dealt with in a better manner just makes you wonder, like, she doesn't have even full control, right? Because I feel like so many, like, Philip, for one, she would have taken care of that nigga <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> Oh, the last thing I remember from this interview. When Archie tells everybody leaving the house, drive safe, I've never heard anything, one, more cute, two, more chilling. Drive safe. Oh, the the drive safe. I was like, is is this Children of the Corn? (laughs) Who's having that conversation? I did just put the pieces together. (laughs) Um, The last thing that I want to say about this interview, too, was I... First of all, I'm so excited for Archwell Productions to be making films, movies, all the cinema about whatever the hell they want. And my least favorite thing post Harry and Meghan coming to Canada and subsequently coming to California was the conversation about they're so greedy and they have they just want to make money off of the the queen and the monarchy. And I'm like, I just realized they got no money now other than what Princess Diana has left them. I'm sure it's millions and millions of dollars, but they have to enter the workforce for, for probably the first time ever mm-hmm. for, you know, as a couple, as a couple. I think it's a lot of people press that they are entering the workforce and then, you know, get to make deals with Netflix and things like that. But mm-hmm. there's also a misunderstanding about like how much they're using all of that to be helpful in the world, you know, and support their causes. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm listen, I'm not trying to be a stan you know, and say that, like, I support them above all else, you know, but <laughs> it really is just a lot of people being dense, you know? Yeah, pressed um, over nothing. Even when you see people online, like, mm-hmm. I just want to know how much they were paid for this interview when Oprah opens it up saying they weren't paid for the interview. It just means that you are not coming into this with any sort of intelligence. You know, you're, you're already angry and you're just like, I'm going to sit here and watch this um, and just pout and be mad. You know, and 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 I, and I don't mm-hmm. see yeah, not emotionally productive. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's just my biggest takeaway from this. You know, it's like it's just reminds you that there's always going to be people in the world who just really cannot be convinced of anything. You know, and I guess we should know that in a world of QAnon and people who you know um, vote for Republicans. But um, <laughs> the the fact that you could hear something. And then ask the question later when it's like, that's the first thing that was said to you. It's like, right. what, 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 what is warped in your brain? Also, Meghan Markle is literally an actress. So it makes sense that she would be forward-facing in whatever she chooses to do next. Right. And the idea that there's always some things that piss people off and some things that don't, right? Like, you're mad that uh, Meghan Markle is making Netflix deals, right? And you hate this person. But... You like that Kayla Cuoco is one of the most paid actresses in the world. You know, it's like people can't divorce their racism and internal biases um, for certain people. And there's always these double standards of when you hate a certain celebrity, it's like they're so privileged and they have all this money. But if it's a celebrity you like, like a John Voight, who's going to say that he loves Trump, then all of a sudden, all of that wealth is okay. Mm-hmm. Also, not to go Pierce Morgan, but Megan is lying about one thing. You didn't Google Harry, bitch. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> I don't believe you. I truly don't believe you didn't do your research before you became a princess. Aida. What? I believed that most of all. She is, at the end of the day, an actress. Mm. <laughs> and an actress... 
who was on Suits. Okay. Okay. She is not doing method here. She is not, you know, like really digging into the research. Okay. Like I, I didn't see her winning any Oscars in her future. You know, she is an actress who was on Suits, who was once in the pilot of the 90210 reboot. Um, giving Dustin Milligan a blowjob in a Jeep. That was the scene that she was in. Doesn't seem to me like she was needing to Google. She does seem pretty earnest. I'll let her have that. But I just, I have a hard time believing. I like look up every Yelp before I go to a restaurant, let alone eat without information. As in Googling Harry. <laughs> I don't know how Archie started picking it up, but every time people leave the house, he starts singing Candle in the Wind 1997. I don't know how... <laughs> <laughs> I want more Archie revelations. Can't wait for um, Archie's eventual sit-down interview with um, Kiki Palmer. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not a bad guess. In 2033, when Archie when Archie has to have conversations about like why his cousins get security and he does not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. All right. When we're back, Lewis and I are going to sit down with Delroy Lindo. I love how I said sit down. (laughs) We're going to sit on the keep it pergola and talk to Delroy. (laughs) We'll be right back. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Our guest today is a master of stage and screen. He's a Tony nominee, a winner of an NAACP Image Award, and multiple SAG Awards. But you and Bella Hadid may know him best as one of Spike Lee's most reliably excellent actors. Please welcome from Defy Bloods, Delroy Lindo. Thank you. Starting off talking about Defy Bloods, as someone who's watched um, you in films forever, it seems like, um, this is truly one of the best performances um, that I've seen from you. Um, and it is so mesmerizing and so powerful, especially you know, when you're getting into almost the like, Shakespearean turns to the camera, a lot of emotion going on in this film. So I wanted to sort of ask, you know, after working with Spike Lee for years, um, what was it like doing this film with him? Like, how was it different? It wasn't. Mm-hmm. Every project that I've done with Spike, he's been really clear with me about the story that he's telling, with the possible exception of Crooklyn. Mm-hmm. But generally, he's really clear. And therefore, I am clear with regard to how I plug in to that story mm-hmm. and can assist him in telling the story that he wants to tell. So from that standpoint, Bloods was very much you know, part of the continuum that started with Spike and I working together back in 1992 with Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. 
this interesting to hear you say that about Crooklyn. Mm. I just want to know maybe then what that process was like in that it differed. Because I know that watching Crooklyn for me, it's one of those beautiful stories that in the end, you sort of realize it's about a young girl's sort of evolution into um, adolescence. Um, But was that something that you all realized initially? Yes, from the standpoint that clearly the young lady was was the protagonist. Mm -hmm. There was a gray area for me with regard to whether I was actually playing Spike's dad. Woody Carmichael was, was based on Spike's dad. There was a gray area that, that got cleared up, mm-hmm. but that was the only little component in all of the films that I've done with Spike where there was not even a lack of clarity per se, but just a kind of a, a gray area. Okay, what is this now? Mm-hmm. And it, it came clear. One of the most gratifying things about my involvement with Crooklyn is that it has proven to be such an enduring mm-hmm. piece of work. People got as recently as, you know, a couple of weeks ago, will tell me how much Crooklyn means to them or various mm-hmm. journalists that I've spoken with in the process of mm-hmm. supporting Bloods have said to me, you know, how much, how special Crooklyn is to them. So that's that's particularly gratifying. Absolutely one of his endearing works, I would say, yeah. Something I love about The Five Bloods is it's a shocking mashup of genres, as in I kind of thought it was this movie just about the connection between uh, the titular characters to begin with, and then it warps into this adventure movie. And in fact, there's a shout out to the treasure of the Sierra Madre in it when someone makes that no stinking badges uh, reference. And I was wondering, did you watch any old movies in preparation for making this movie, which seems to juxtapose so many classic film genres together? We did not. I did not. And in fact, I did not become aware of the uh, treasure of the Sierra Madre and the Apocalypse Now connections until I saw the finished cut and then Spike started speaking about those connections Mm. with the press. Um, But as we were making it, I did not make those connections at all. And he didn't speak about that, which was fine because, you know, in the final analysis, we all want, I'm sure, including Spike, those connections notwithstanding, obviously we want the film to stand on its own terms. And I, and I believe it does. That's interesting to hear that, too. I'd like to know a little bit about, uh, since you've worked with, you know, Spike um, so many times, um, what his general process is like once you are receiving a script from him, once you're getting to set. Um, I mean, especially, you know, maybe how his um, process has sort of evolved from 1992 to 2020. Remarkably, it's very, very similar in terms of the various processes. Spike would call and say, I'm doing Project X, not Malcolm X because I auditioned for Malcolm X, but with Crooklyn, Clockers, and Five Bloods. He calls up and he says, man, I've got this project. I want you to, I'm going to send you the script, Uh, read it and let me know what you think. I want you to play part X and uh, read it and let me know what you think. That's the jumping off point. That's the point of departure. Once I've said, you know, yeah, I'd like to do this, um, there is usually a two-week rehearsal period, which is wonderful, unusual for film because it's not a given. And in that two-week rehearsal process, there is usually some discussion. There was more discussion on Bloods. Crooklyn, there was a lot of emphasis on the kids. And there was a lot of emphasis on bonding between Alfred and I and the, and the young people 
on clockers with regard to my work with Spike, there was very little discussion because fairly early on in the process, I met with Richard Price, Mm -hmm. who had written the book of clockers. He informed me that the character I was playing, Rodney Little, was in fact based on a real person. Mm. Oh, he said, you know, the cat is in Jersey City. And I was living in New York City at the time. I said, man, can I meet him? So I was doing a lot of, I hung out with that gentleman a lot and various other individuals in Jersey City. Crooklyn, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time, the producers very graciously got me a piano teacher. I do not play keyboard. I was spending a lot of time on the piano. With Bloods, we were in Thailand together. Um, myself, Clark Peters, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., Jonathan Majors, uh, Norm Lewis, uh, Chadwick came much later. But in that two-week process before Chadwick got there and before we went into production, there was quite a bit of discussion around various aspects of the text. Bloods was a little different. For me, Spike has pretty much always allowed me to investigate my own work process and bring that to the work. That was true on on Bloods. Something also that is striking about this movie that I did not know until I read about it is that your character, and this is a a huge reason I think why you're getting such uh, rave reviews for it, has this climactic moment where you are referencing both Shakespeare and Marvin Gaye. That's all I'll say about this particular moment. Mm. And you came up with it. It wasn't in the script. And not since uh, Meryl Streep wrote her own courtroom speech in Kramer versus Kramer mm. have I known about like a dramatic actor inventing something that is so paramount to the movie and it actually getting in. This particular moment, was it after like a, a bunch of takes that you gave it a shot? Or is it just something you started on with early on when you were shooting and just let it go? I mean, it's, it's so shocking to me that you came up with it extemporaneously. When I first received the script, as I was getting to know this character, it was clear to me that Paul is a large, tragic character in the August Wilsonian, Shakespearean mode. Mm-hmm. So that was where the Shakespearean, Wilsonian reference mm-hmm. came in. Uh-huh. So in the, in the telling and the retelling and the retelling, it's now become, I put into the character these Shakespearean um, aspects and, and, and not quite. All right. I recognize that the magnitude of Paul sure. was Shakespearean or Wilsonian. Mm-hmm. Um, with regard to the improvisational aspect, yes, you are correct. In the scene, I believe you're referencing, and there may be at this point, people who have not seen the films, I don't want to spoil it, but it, there's a point in the, in the in the script where I leave the Bloods. I leave um, Clark and, and my son, played by Jonathan Majors and Isaiah. Um, I leave them and I go off into the underbrush. And as I was going off into the underbrush, I started to improvise. Mm-hmm. And it was an improvisation based on Marvin's lyrics. And I just started riffing. It felt right in the moment. It was completely improvised. And Spike, God bless him. And the sound engineer, God bless him. Spike kept the camera rolling and we got it. <laughs> yes, I started improvising and Spike kept the camera rolling. And then what I remember, by the time he finally said, cut, the sky opened up and this storm the whole crew, we all went back to base camp as quickly as we could. As we were going back to base camp in one of our vans, a tree <laughs> fell in front of us. 
a tree got uprooted. That's how strong the storm was. And we had to wait while the tree was removed. But my point is, as we were doing the last part of that scene, and I started improvising, and Spike kept the camera rolling, and the sound guy kept the, kept the sound going, and the storm started to brew. It was this extraordinary synchronicity. There was this coming together of the elements with the text and with the technical aspect, and it all came together, and that found its way into the finished cut of the film, the final cut of the film. I love that. love that. Um, yeah, extraordinary. It was incredible to be a part of it. You mentioned it's not just Shakespearean, but you know it's, it's August Wilsonian. Yeah, you were a part of the premiere performance of what I would say is maybe my favorite play, um, Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Amen. And um, Amen. you're in that, you know, opposite Angela Bassett. There's so many people in that um, production, especially now seeing people just rediscovering August Wilson thanks to um, Denzel's work. Rediscovering and, August Wilson on film. On film, yes, on, on film. film. Uh -huh. uh, uh -huh. We need more productions of it, certainly. Yeah. Um, what has been just the enduring legacy of being a part of that play, um, and especially the introduction of one of um, America's greatest playwrights? To be part of that legacy and part of that history is, um, it's like a notch that you have in your arsenal of experiences that is so rock solid and so valuable. It's like jewelry. And I'm, I'm thinking of that in this moment. It's like having an invaluable piece of jewelry, you know, like the crown jewels mm -hmm. that will exist forever and ever and ever and ever. And you're part of that. That's how it feels. That's how it feels. I, I don't know what the descriptive is, but mm -hmm. in terms of my work in the theater, playing Walter Lee Younger uh, in A Raisin in the Sun twice at the Kennedy Center in DC and at the Wilshire Theater in Los Angeles, interspersing that with my first couple of productions of Joe Turner's Come and Gone, playing Harold mm -hmm. Lewis, which ultimately culminated in the Broadway production. Mm -hmm. I grew exponentially as an actor. Mm -hmm. I grew in terms of establishing a work ethic for myself that I carried over into my work for the camera. Understanding what it takes when, when one is challenged with a big, big classical part, because both Walter Lee Younger and Harold Loomis are also big classical parts. They are large vocally, they are large emotionally and psychologically, and being challenged to meet the challenge of, of playing those characters and the ethic that I that I established for myself during that period, I carried that that ethic over into my work for um, film, and the most recent you know iteration of that is Paul George in uh, The Five Bloods. Mm -hmm. Well, in terms of Broadway actors who have since come on to dominate and uh, appear constantly in film and TV, another person I think of is Christine Baranski, who you work with on The Good Fight, and just. She's one of these people who, I guess like you, is just the, the reliability of someone like that. Like, they will never not be great. And I, uh, what, what has been your experience working with her? I just feel like she's, I, I once said, she's like if a tall glass of white wine went to Juilliard. Just like exquisite. Well, well, you know, I'm speaking about work ethic. There's a work ethic with Christine. There's a work ethic with that whole core company of actors mm -hmm. that is so comforting to be a part of. 
because you know it's reliable, it's steady, it's there, it's present. And that is not always the case in any uh, work environment. Um, that has not always been my experience working in television. Uh, one is working with actors who have different ways of working, different levels of experience. And sometimes the people who may have the lead uh, in, a, in a given television show are not actors who have a wealth of experience, right? With Good Fight, that core group, that core ensemble, all come from the theater. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there is this ethic, which is not to say we all work the same, but the, but the ethos is similar. Mm -hmm. That presents steadfastness, thereness, that one can depend on inside the work. God, is that good to hear. I want to, I want to just before yeah. we go on, I want to, I want to just jump back really quickly to, to that, 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 that moment you were speaking about. And then we can come back to Good Fight if you, if you wish. Of course. Um, that moment at the end of that scene we were just discussing where I started to improvise. Mm -hmm. um, there were a number, that scene and the scene on the boat, uh, when, the, when, when the guy tries to sell me the chicken, everything up to the point where he tries to sell me the chicken was scripted. Everything after that, mm -hmm. to the point where we all bring our fists together at the end of the scene, was improvised. And once again, Spike embraced it and it became part of the finished cut of the film. When one has experiences like that, that are being embraced by the director, that are being embraced by one's fellow actors, I can't tell you how foundational that becomes to the success of the work process and the comfort that exists inside the work process. And all of those things were evident on Bloods at various points in the process. And I, and I um, identified those two moments in particular because they are examples of this wonderful improvisation that has taken place that was not necessarily scripted but becomes part of the storytelling and in those instances become a foundational or a basic part of the storytelling that in turn enhances the whole process mm -hmm. it's a beautiful thing to be a part of as an actor that was a gorgeous thing to watch. And I think just what you had said about the good fight was um, just how I perceived watching that as well. You know, any scene with you and Audra, for instance, was just mm. electric. And it's knowing, seeing people who are theater actors yeah. come together. Yeah. Um, you talked about, you know, like having this experience as an actor and, you know, always bringing something to the table that's sort of like this wealth of experience, you know? And you, I would say that you've also been an actor who's, you know, appeared in what we would think of, you know, as like um, Hollywood blockbusters, right? Mm -hmm. And I just want to know a bit about the process of, you know, like working with someone who's like maybe one of my favorite actresses, um, Angelina Jolie, mm -hmm. you know, in a film like Gone in 60 Seconds mm -hmm. where you're all coming in and you're like, you know, this is like a summer film, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, or even like Aaliyah and Jet Li and like Romeo Must Die. What's it like for an actor like yourself knowing I'm coming into this type of film, and then what do you all sort of do on set to really sort of make it your own? Interesting that you mentioned those two particular examples. With either one of them, with Romeo Must Die or Gone in 60 Seconds, I didn't go in thinking, oh, this is a summer film. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't go in thinking, oh, this is a, one of the studio's tentpole films. Mm -hmm. These are instances in which that ethic that I talked about, that I bring with me from the theater, 
that is as ever present in films like that. And it is important for me personally to have, you know, a way of working that I can rely on in those kinds of films, because you mentioned Aaliyah. Aaliyah was just starting her career as an actor, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't know who Jit Lee or Aaliyah were. When I met with mm. Bill Silver, I had no clue. Uh, he mentioned, uh, the, the, the producer, when I met with him, mentioned, you know, it would be Jet Li and it would be Aaliyah. And I'm thinking, who are they? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, with Romeo Mastai, working with Aaliyah and Jit, who at that time, I don't know about now, but his facility with English was relatively limited. Mm -hmm. I don't have virtually any scenes with him, but I had a number of scenes with Aaliyah. Clearly, she was inexperienced, but the wonderful thing about Aaliyah, she was like a sponge, and she wanted to be there, and she wanted to learn, and she wanted to just really do a good job, and that's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. But in terms of my own process, that is when I'm really relying on my, my, my ethic, my process, because I have to be as strong as I can be, or even stronger in order to make sure that, that I hold up my part of the storytelling. Mm -hmm. With Gone in 60 Seconds, that is a big movie star driven project. There was a lot of rewriting. And once again, because on a, on a film like that, there are so many elements that are completely out of my control as actor. I'm then even more so relying on what I know about myself as an acting instrument and relying on my acting instrument to get me through some of the creatively precarious moments. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example. The scene in the garage mm -hmm. where I show up and Robert Duvall's character is there. They're all there. Nick's character, all the thieves, all the, all the car, thie car thieves are there. <laughs> And here I come, right? Roland Castleback, I walk in. And that scene was rewritten. I have no clue what was going on behind the scenes, but Nick disappeared for a long time with the writer. Mm -hmm. And various aspects of the scene were being rewritten. And then I had a lot of words to say in that scene. And I remember some of my words were changed. Really important passages were changed and had it to me in the moment. Mm. And I had to go off and, 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 and memorize the stuff and then come back and deliver in the scene. And I did it. And I remember one of the actors said, and I don't remember who it was, one of the actors said, wow, man, you, you, that was like a page and a half of dialogue or something. And Robert Duvall said, he comes from the theater. Never forget it. Robert Duvall. Now, <laughs> you know, that's, that's Robert Duvall. Hell yes. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> A, it was a wonderful compliment, and coming from Robert Duvall, it was a double compliment. <laughs> but my point is, that was an instance in which I had to rely on my process in the face of these precarious, ever-changing components. And if you don't have a, if you don't have a technique, it can be even more precarious. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us today, Delroy. I mean, thank you. Watching your performance in the in Bloods, just to reiterate, is it's so fantastic, um, and you can really see the culmination of a lot of stuff that Spike has been working on for years. Yep, his best father son relationship I've seen since he got game. Oh yeah, 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 right. Like I said, Joe Turner is one of my favorite plays. Sad I was would have never been able to see that performance, but to get to see hints of that in. 
and Paul was um, amazing. Thank so, you. Thank, thank you so much. And in, in closing, I, I would be remiss if I do not mention my fellow castmates, mm -hmm. uh, Clark Peters, Chadwick Boseman, obviously, mm -hmm. um, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., Norm Lewis, and Jonathan Majors, all of whom brought to that company, that ensemble, a, a gravitas and a strength each in their own ways that contributed to the overall work process that I was a part of. And I'm, I'm forever appreciative of that. So I should, I just want to say that in closing. Congrats on that. And also congrats on mastering a script that Nicolas Cage had messed with. That strikes me as a challenge. So. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. God bless you guys. All, right. yep. All the best. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Aida, you look pensive. Yeah, I'm pensive. I'm irritated. I wasted money this weekend. I'm so mad. When I first moved to LA, there was a restaurant that I thought that I discovered called Thai 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 that made the best pad thai that I'd ever had delivered to my little apartment in Koreatown. And I enjoyed it so much. Now, it's been about a year since I ordered from Thai 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 and I went to go order from it again. So this is all part of my keep it, I promise. My keep it goes to this new, at the advent of ghost kitchens, with this raggedy fucking thing that we've had to accept into our lives because all of our food is delivered now because of the pandemic and because of just life. Ghost kitchens are restaurants that are designed only for, deli for delivery only businesses. It's not new, like, you know, pizza places are pretty much ghost kitchens. But now there's huge warehouses all over the place that small companies can contract out kitchen space and work their little restaurant out from there. And then, you know, some Uber Eats, Postmates, DoorDash will come pick up. Fuck this. <laughs> fuck this entire thing. <laughs> fuck it. Fuck it. I'm so mad. I don't care about technology. It's all moving too quickly for me. I'm so mad that I didn't get to get the delicious Thai food that I was so used to getting because now there's like 10 Thai restaurants that all serve the same Pad Thai. They've all mm. kind of consolidated their mm. shitty ingredients into one disgusting amalgamation of not Pad Thai, not delicious Pad Thai. <sighs> and I had to eat it when it came because I'm not wasting $13. But I just, I'm telling you, the world is simply moving too fast for me and I don't want to be a Jetson. I don't want to be a Jetson. Okay, Grandma. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. I'm so mad. I'm so mad you know i love a ghost kitchen i knew you fucking would ira first of all there's some very good ones on doordash but i will say that that problem that you're talking about with ty is the fact that a lot of these ghost kitchens they are under different names yes so it's not the consolidation of recipes and how they're making things it's literally the same place will just be under multiple names on different apps and sometimes even the same app so if you're ordering from ty 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 or then you're ordering from i love ty they're probably the exact same restaurant. Oh, God. They're just trying to, like, maximize their, you know, visibility on the app. Mm -hmm. But here's another, here's, a, like, a latent fucked up thing about that, too, is that now these low-effort, horribly named side restaurants are popping up on Postmates. Mm -hmm. Like, last night, I found a grilled cheese place called Bitch Don't Grill My Cheese. That does not need to exist! Okay, whenever they have, like, a swear word in them, like, fuck carbs or something like that, it is definitely a ghost kitchen. 
because you're not going into a brick and mortar <laughs> place called <laughs> Fuck Carbs. My family has run Fuck Carbs since 1936. <laughs> um, I do agree in a sense because it does lend itself to the idea that DoorDash and these things have fucked up um, actual restaurants and people who are trying to survive in the pandemic, right? Because it's like, first of all, the cuts that they have to um, give to DoorDash and other apps to even deliver their food. Uh, and then you're competing with ghost kitchens, which can flood an app with 10 different restaurant names that are really mm-hmm. just the same place. And and the rating system, I really want to know about too, because when it's like, this place has five stars, I'm like, who is rating this? I never rated no food. It's <laughs> like when you know an actual restaurant that you like in LA that you want to order from, you have to search their name to see if it's on there because it's not going to pop up in, like, recommended places, even though most people would prefer to order from that place. By the way, I'm still not over Aida getting something on Postmates for $13. When I order Postmates, (laughs) it's coming up in the 40s. I don't know how this happens for me every time. $13 was how much the Thai cost, I assume. It must have been $25 for delivery. Right. Well, I I forgot to tell you guys that the reason I found out it was a ghost kitchen was because I did pickup for the first time in my life i left my home wow. and walked into a literal warehouse and it was one man it was one time man with his 10 restaurants is this winter's bone <laughs> who let you who let you into the dark like this so that is that is just my my qualm of the week this is a children's book aida and the ghost kitchen <laughs> i have one final preemptive keep it to whatever the fuck these little rappers are gonna do like political commentary at the Grammys this Sunday. I know the baby's going to do something stupid. I know Lil Baby's going to do something stupid. It's a nursery of stupid, <laughs> stupid, stupid rappers. The Rugrats are out. Yeah. They're going to be doing something. I, I remember last time I complained about um, the baby doing a performance where he like reenacted George Floyd's mm. death. Um, so I just know the baby's going to do something stupid and I want to warn everybody. Maybe it'll just be Harry and Meghan, you know, like throat <laughs> baby remix. <laughs> I like to be fucked oh, like a duchess. <laughs> the Grammys are like the royal the royal firm, except the person they're not helping out is the weekend. Though I guess I'm fucking glad that the Grammys are actually occurring uh, after like several delays. So. I saw a commercial and I was like, everybody is performing at the Grammys this year. And I was like, oh wait, yes, they're performing from their living rooms. Right, duh. <laughs> uh, my keep it this week is a familiar one. In fact, I may have even said it before, but it bears repeating. I cannot believe we are headed into an Oscar season where Olivia Coleman and Glenn Close will be nominated in the same fucking category again. Yes, Glenn Close nominated for Hillbilly Elegy, a movie that the human brain is unable to process as anything more than a B minus. <laughs> Olivia Coleman, who is amazing in The Father, a movie that I feel like nobody is talking about. Anthony Hopkins is unbelievable. One of the greatest movies of the year. And now I'm in the position of rooting for Olivia Coleman, who ruined my year two years ago with her plummy accent in the film The Favorite, in which she was also lovely. I not plummy. I, <laughs> <laughs> The pudding was out, Aida. <laughs> the blood pudding was out. When is the firm going to take care of Olivia Colman? I would love to know. Exactly. Because I can, there's, there's a quality about Glenn Close where I just cannot stand watching her lose. I can't st- She's too, I guess the word is fierce. Mm-hmm. Her resting face is, I've earned this one. Her mm. resting face is, I have a storied career. I am an august woman. I'm a good person. <laughs> and yet, 
She just hasn't had the windfall of awards the way a, a Meryl has or like a Frances McDormand has, whatever. And again, I know Glenn Close has an awesome career, but I just don't know how much more I can take. I, I mean, I think I've brainwashed the Keep It mm. listenership into every time Glenn Close comes up thinking, oh no, I hope Lewis is okay. But guess what? I was right to do that because it is too much for me. So keep thinking of me as we deal with this award season. Are they really that concerned, girl? With your well-being, with Greg Close. Ch Ch it's like Meghan Markle's friends. It's like Meghan Markle's <laughs> friends. They're like, you won't believe what I saw about Glenn Close, and I know it is wearing on you. I think that you think that she loses the way that like she lost in Les Liaisons, like like trapped in her corset, heaving yeah. bosom, throwing <laughs> things off Weeping. the table. A light blonde tendril just whisking away from her face. I will offer that maybe Glenn's problem is is that she wants to get an Oscar, and she continues to pick horrible films. Like, Hillbilly Elegy is Oscar bait. She and Amy Adams look a damn fool <laughs> in it. And they are both thirsty for Oscars, and they are not giving you any of the kind of exciting performances that we used to get from them, especially Glenn. Mm -hmm. Go make yeah. a good movie again, and then I'll consider worrying about you not getting an Oscar. That said, I do think Glenn's performance in that movie is the movie's only reason to be. Like, what else are you watching for? Frida Pinto on the phone? Right, but you read the script, you're <laughs> like, I really need to do this. Fuck off. Right. But also, by the way, Ron Howard, go back to school challenge. I have just about had it with that man. <laughs> <laughs> um, my keep it this week is to the WandaVision finale. And I want to mm -hmm. reiterate that I am a fan of the show overall. Is that because you're afraid of the fucking insane fans that are everywhere? But go ahead. I'm one of them, okay? Okay, well, they're rabid and weird. I yeah. am one of the snipers outside <laughs> Marty Scorsese's house every time he writes an essay about how Marvel is killing cinema. <laughs> 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 but I will say that... The initial complaints about it when it went from like an interesting sort of like satire and like parody of like old sitcoms and then was turning into full Marvel show annoyed me at first mm -hmm. because I was like, this is really interesting. Like, and I really liked that we got the Marvel formula, but slowed down. You know, you got to see characters actually evolve. You got to see them be in real scenes. You know, it wasn't sped up so you could get to the last act that always happens in a movie where people are just fighting and punching each other until we got to the finale of WandaVision, which was just that. And you have, like, Agatha fighting Wanda. You got the two Visions fighting. You got Monica Rambeau doing whatever, because I still don't even understand her powers <laughs> in this finale. And it's just like... What am I watching here? You did. You took all that time, really, sort of like writing beautiful characters, just to sort of like toss it all together in the end. And then the post-credit mm. scenes like aren't even as interesting as the ones like in the movies. Like you get to see Monica scheduling a meeting. You see the Scarlet Witch reading a book. Really exciting. <laughs> I was on my phone the entire time during this finale, which is sad because I was riveted the other eight episodes. Somebody pointed out that the Scarlet Witch really is not dressed in Scarlet. Um, and I do have to say, dramaturgically, I have a problem with that. Um, there should have been a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you again to Delroy Lindo for joining us and to Harry and Meghan for sitting down with Oprah and giving us an entire episode of content to talk about. I don't even think this is British. I sound like the Lucky Charms leprechaun. Anyway, we'll see y'all next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Caroline Reston and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. 
Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. I think I've heard of him. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. Stay safe. Be blessed. God loves you. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.